you have a Bible today, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 37 uh, down to verse 47. The book of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37 and reading down to verse 47. To uh, Bible readers, this is a familiar scripture. This is coming on the day we're, we're kind of jumping in the middle of an event, the day of Pentecost, where the Lord's Spirit descended in a tremendous way that the world has not seen since, nor before, I don't believe. And Peter is up preaching the gospel to presumably many of the same people who crucified Jesus some weeks earlier. And they're hearing there's people from at least 15 different languages that are present. And they're hearing this sermon miraculously in their own language. Same sermon, same speaker. They're all hearing it in their own language, which is obviously... What is referred to in the King James as the gift of tongues. And this comes to the end of this account in verse 37 where it shows the reaction of these thousands of people to what they have just heard. And we'll try to take some of our thoughts from there this morning. Pray for me that what would come out is what the Lord would want to come out today. Acts chapter 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were gathered together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That will conclude our reading this morning. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. And if I made mistakes in the reading, I apologize. I don't intend to ever, but sometimes I don't recognize that I do. The title of our message this morning is A Spiritual... Revival, a spiritual revival. Now, it seems like I'm a few weeks late on this one, doesn't it? Um, For those of you that don't know, we just had our revival a few weeks ago, and um, certainly that is what we hoped for, hope for every time that we have a special series of services set aside. What I read to you this morning is an account from the most spiritual revival that's ever occurred. I don't think, despite the fact that in various parts of the world throughout time, God's Spirit has descended in a powerful way, I don't suppose that any will ever surpass this account that was prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years prior to its happening and then manifested on this day of Pentecost. Um. A lot of thoughts going through my mind this morning. I just pray the Lord would help them come out. Um, in years past, 
revival and what takes place that we see now um, did not occur the way that it occurs now. Um, Nowadays, we at this church and many churches just like it, uh, we schedule revivals. We schedule times and places where we say, you know, we're going to put some emphasis, some extra emphasis and devotion into our activities. And here at this church, we do that three times a year. I don't think all three times a year is that historical. I think our summer revival is the one that has gone on for many, many, many years. Um, And I think that those can be good things. I want to get that out of the way to, to begin with. I have no qualms with when people feel inclined of the Lord to schedule things and say we're going to have a youth retreat in the fall and we're going to have youth weekends and we're going to have revivals. I think if done properly and looked at from the right perspective, they can be beneficial to the church and to others. I also think that with any enterprise, even if it's a good thing, you have to pause and consider trade-offs. To every institution, whenever we make a decision, I hope you know in your own personal life, to every good decision that you made, there are trade-offs. There are things that you give up or perhaps unintended consequences which occur that can have a detrimental effect. And I think revival is that way. I think it is our duty to step back and consider what are drawbacks to having revivals. I think one of the potential drawbacks to having a revival is that we begin to put great emphasis on a very short period of time. And other parts of the year, other services, when that spirit of anxiousness is not present, perhaps we allow our spiritual lives to be relegated to this part of the calendar, events, and we must, as Christians that are striving to be mature and devoted, resist the temptation to put all of our eggs in that basket. Resist the temptation to try and and see good things come to pass, and when that time period is over, allow our minds and our attitudes and our devotions to return back to a state for which we need revived from. Now, the concept of revival and that word in and of itself, implied within that concept is the idea of life. And so really to me, to understand what revival is, we've got to understand what is life. And to understand what life is, I think it's easier if we start with the concept of death. Because all of us have experienced the loss of someone we love, and we understand that as the Bible teaches us back in Genesis chapter 2, that God created two parts to man, a spiritual part, which is you, that personality, that eternal part which is made in God's image, and then there is a fleshly part. And when a person dies, that is when that spiritual man, that spirit of man is removed from that that house, that tabernacle of clay, and there is a separation which takes place. And we acknowledge that as death. In the same sense, when we talk about somebody being given eternal life, what we're saying is, in their natural state, they are dead, as Ephesians 2 tells us, in their trespasses and in sins. They are separated from life in Jesus Christ. He is life. And being separated from him is being in a state of spiritual death. And so the moment someone is saved, it is God's spirit begins to indwell them. And now they have spiritual life. They're no longer subject ever. Never again will they be subject to spiritual death. That's a consideration with its own. Perhaps sometime we'll talk about. They'll never die. So then what is the concept of revival? Well, I think to each, I would say there's no formal thing that I can find or a thought. This is just 
many of my thoughts as I've contemplated this and studied this. But I think people tend to look revival in two different ways. One of them is saying, we have a grand group of, a large group of people in our community, in our lives, in our families, which are separated from God, and we want to see them come to life in Christ. And so let's gather together, let's put a special emphasis on the gospel message being proclaimed that the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, could do a work in their heart and eventually they could experience this spiritual life. That's one way of revival. I would say since I've been here, that has been the focus in my experience here in this short 16 or 18 month span. I think there's also another sense of which revival is understood. That sense of revival is that God's people, particularly a church at a location, has been detached from God. That there is a sense to which they have drifted away, their focus, their heart, their life, has become, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 warns us not to be, entangled in the affairs of life. And that because of our entanglements in the world, God has removed communion from us. God is not going to have a competition. He wants complete allegiance and surrender and our undying, undistracted devotion and mind set upon him. And when it is not, God often subtly removes himself from us. And if you're a Christian who has any relationship of God whatsoever, where it is an active relationship, it doesn't take very long of you drifting alone apart from God to begin to notice his detachment. I think of the times that I've been separated from my family for a couple days at a time. And at first, I don't notice it that much. The first 24 hours. Because I just saw them. But the longer the time goes, they're such an important and vital part of who I am. And my attachment and relationship is so fundamental and foundational in everything about my life that the longer that I'm apart from them, the more the yearning gets to be back with them. For somebody who walks with the Lord, you ought to notice, hey, I'm drifting. I don't like this. I don't hear his voice. I don't sense his presence in the same way. I don't have the freeness and the openness in conversing with him. I don't see the world according to the wisdom of God. I'm now again seeing it according to my own wisdom. I'm becoming caught up in the affairs of this life. My interest and affections are being exhausted upon those things which are temporary. And you begin to feel if you're a Christian that really in their core wants to be close to the Lord, you begin to sense more and more the drifting and estrangement from God. So in that context, what is revival? Well, it's when God's people, who for some time have been adrift, suddenly there's communion again. Suddenly there's renewed affection again. Have you ever with your spouse had just periods of time in your marriage where you're just at each other? There's just a distance. It's not always spoken, but there's an there's a intangible, you're not in sync. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed, the scripture says. And you're saying, you know, we're trying to walk together, but we're not agreed. And so there is this tension, or at the very least, there is this dissatisfaction. This is not the way I want to live. And then, events will transpire, conversations will happen, and suddenly, there's a union again. It's nothing that I could really describe, 
There is just a coming together and a oneness in spirit, in mind, in desire, in heart. That is what you want in marriage. And in that sense, I would say when God's people and God have been estranged for some time and they come back in fellowship with one another and their communion is enriched and there's vitality in the church and he is manifesting himself as he sees fit because there is yielding to him in people's lives, then we could say, man, we're experiencing great reviving. There are changes that are taking place within us and we want those to remain and it seems as though they will. And so that is reviving. I would say this morning, I think we're in need of that. That's just my opinion. Here's what I mean by that. I think it's a wonderful thing that we come together periodically for these revivals. But friends, that's not what it's about. That is not what it's about. What is it about? This place, this people that are here, we jointly are the temple of God where he is meant to dwell. Not once a year as he did there in the Old Testament when he would descend and he would come and he would manifest himself in the temple behind the veil. That is not meant to be where God is relegated to. God is desirous at all times to be amongst his people in manifested fellowship, communion, palpable, observable, discernible fact that God is here. And he's with us. The comment was made at the end of our revival that I felt like encompassed my attitude towards our spring revival very well. I was not feeling like we ought to go on anymore, but I liked where we were at. I liked the presence of God with us. I felt that people were yielding in their spirits to his leadership. It seemed to me from, the, from being a participant in this revival that people's minds and affections from the time they went to bed to the time they woke up in the morning were, were set upon the revival. And every part during the day, it seemed as those people's hearts were turned this direction. And there was a spirit that was present. There was a, a one accordness which was found here in this particular revival. There was a unity in spirit and in mind and in affection. Which God desired to inhabit and he did with us. And I would say in the last number of revivals that we have experienced, we have had that. We have had God inhabiting this place. I, what was expressed was, I, I'm okay, I don't feel a leadership to go on in revival, but I don't want this to end. And that very well summarized my feelings about the matter. I want this to go on. Now, what does that involve? Well, we look through the book of Acts here in chapter 2. And we find, we can read, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about when we read the book of Acts in the New Testament, we read the apostles' sermons. They don't blow you away. Now that may seem a little strange to say, but what I'm saying is the content is not some marvelous thing like Jesus preached that we had never heard before. Right? We go to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says some things the world has never heard before. We come to the apostles writing in Acts chapter 2 and we read about this and what we find is that Peter is really repeating a combination of sermons that Jesus has preached throughout his entire ministry. So Peter is, is teaching these things and is preaching these things and is applying them in a unique sense. But in another way, he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that they were guilty of crucifying him. A message which we hear frequently today. And so there is nothing that is encapsulated in this message that is the cause of the reviving of God's people here. So what was it? What was the uniqueness that was found here? Well, I would say there's a, a number of things. I think one aspect of the uniqueness is that God had told these people in the, chapter 1, 
Jesus was here on earth for 40 days teaching his disciples. He said, go into Jerusalem and pray and wait. And so there was this sense in which this is what the people did. They went to one place. They got together and day after day passed. And their hearts were knowing and believing because the promise of God's word he had given to them. I am going to manifest myself in a great way. Now you go together, get in one accord, pray and wait until of my own timing and volition, I decide to revive you. Now that same promise in a slightly different way exists with us today. There's a sense in which God has commissioned us with certain instructions and promises. And when we will be obedient to those promises, we cannot condition God into responding at a certain time and at a certain place. But I will say this, when God's people are devoted to coming together in one accord, in prayer, in the preaching of the gospel, in the lifting up of our Savior, in loving on one another, in spreading the gospel, and they have devoted themselves to do that with no time limit, with no set day or week or hour in which, okay, now we're going to cease and we're going to reorient our lives back to those things that we did before revival. But their heart is saying, Lord, this is where my heart is. You have my heart. I am not taking it back. And if the leadership of God within the midst of a Sunday morning or a Tuesday afternoon or a Friday evening or the middle of the night on a Saturday inclines our hearts to ask Act on his behalf. God has our heart. And we've not taken it back. These people went and they prayed and they waited for God. Now let me ask you this question. This is a thought that crossed my mind this week as I was walking up in the cemetery contemplating this. What good would God do us if he blessed us only during seasons of revival? Like, let's say that we have a a spring, a summer, and a fall revival, and God said, okay, during that time and in preparation of that time, the people genuinely seek after me. The people genuinely come together for the welfare of the lost community. They really do. And during those 5 to 10 or 12 or 15 days of gathering, I'm going to yield to their desires. What would that teach us? What would that cause us to do? Well, I would argue this. About 20 days of the year, 30 days of the year, we would be spiritually reminded. And the other 335 days of the year, we would be preoccupied with self. God would not be doing us any favors. Have you you thought maybe, I'm just... That sounds condescending, and I don't mean it that way. Have you thought that maybe God's withholding from reviving us is due to that fact? He doesn't want 30 days. He wants you. He wants you. Not to return back. During revivals here, we see an awakening of people. And I'm speaking this... I hope you know, as always, I mean this in a spirit of love, but I want to point out some things that I feel like are important to know. So please take it that way. People awaken at our church. And some of you, spiritually, you're more zealous. You're more eager to call out to God in prayer and testify. You're more mindful of worship in our music and in our singing. You're more thoughtful about those lost people around us. And that's a good thing. Where is it today? Where is it today? Have you been preparing to be here today? This is an important question. Because here's what I see at a global level. Churches that teach and proclaim the truth have so attached to this world that being 
sold out to God is too big of an inconvenience to our personal lives. It's too inconvenient for you to get stirred and for this to grab a hold of you and detach from hobbies and detach from work and detach from the accumulation of wealth and money. And so there's this convenience that falls within our yielding at particular times when we can tidy up, when we can bear in our personal lives the losses that we will suffer from focusing our attention on spiritual things and not carnal things. But I would say this morning, I do not in any circumstances want God to visit us at all until we are prepared to yield to him completely and entirely because I don't want us to develop in our minds and our hearts this sense in which that we can condition God, that we can control God, that somehow we can uh, make God come at certain times and not at other times based upon our actions. No, what we want to do is what these people did. They went to Jerusalem. They yielded themselves to God. There was no time frame that God gave them. You know, that's one of my favorite things about watching God in the scripture scriptures is he doesn't give people these time frames of saying, you know what, I'm going to do this in so many days or so many weeks or so many years. No, he said, apostles, go to Jerusalem. That was the most difficult place they could have ever gone because that's where he was crucified. That's where the, the torrent of persecution was the very strongest. That's where the watchful eyes of the Sanhedrin were looking for these Christians that they could persecute. That was the place. And Jesus said, I want you to go there and see Stay there and pray and wait until the Spirit of God descends from on high. He put them in a place where they would feel pressure, where they would feel weight, where they really their allegiance was put to the test. If they could endure waiting on the Spirit of God in Jerusalem, then it was evidence. Lord, we want you more than anything else. We may come to Jerusalem and get killed for being here and worshiping. We may get recognized like Peter did the night of his crucifixion. We may get strung up. But Lord, we're going to be faithful to obey. Revival. You know, there's a few things I wrote down here. Whichever type of revival we're talking about, reviving of God's people, reviving of lost people getting saved, Whatever the manifestation, there were three things that I wrote down that I wanted to share with you this morning. Signs, what happens when people are in the presence of getting revived? Either type. The first thing is this. Both types of revivals begin with a deep conviction of sin. Both types. When lost people get revived, what what happened here in Acts chapter 2? Peter's up preaching the gospel. And the Bible says this, they were pricked in their hearts. Now, I want to tell you a mistake that I have made that the Lord has helped to show me. And I I want to say this here because I think it's important. We have a bunch of young children here this morning, and it's been since day one that I came here, I've, I've emphasized to the church that's a lot of where my burden is is that our young people at this church, we wouldn't lose one of them. Not one. I can't control that. You can't control that. God can. And so I feel like what happened during my childhood is there was a lack of discipleship, teaching, instruction. And so my natural bent is towards that because I didn't have it. And so I feel this desire for kids to understand the truth, be taught and instructed systematically the right thing. And that's an important thing, and I'm not going to diminish that whatsoever. The Bible instructs us over and over again that the responsibility of the Lord's church is to disciple those new converts. And so we ought to be Studious. We ought to discuss with ourselves in your home. I hope the clear, most prominent objective of your home is the discipleship of your children. And yet I'll contend this morning, that's not enough. It's not enough. It took me a long time for God to show me that. 
And it came in part through a conversation I had with a pastor who said he had spent the last 20 years of his life trying to disciple, being very hands-on, teaching systematically the kids and then the teenage group and with this whole group trying to be as involved as he possibly can, having kids to his house, having all the different events where he could disciple them. And he said, I got to the very end of that and I realized that I was as much of a failure in the sense of the retention rate as what all those that I grew up with had done in the same when they didn't try to disciple. He said, that was really concerning to me. So as I was telling about my burden to disciple... He told me that, and it was like the Lord just smacked me in the face. And I thought, well, that's always been the solution to me, is discipleship. And now I don't think it is. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a big part of it. But there was another part of it that the Lord began to show me. And that is this. What people in general need to see, what young people need to see, is people having real communion and fellowship with God Almighty. In other words, this. They need to witness what I read to you. They need to witness the Spirit of God descending from heaven, manifesting Himself amongst a group of people, Leading those people to live in a certain way, to act in a certain way, to speak in a certain way continuously. And through that consistent manifestation of his spirit, there will be times throughout that time period where the hearts and minds of young people will be perked up and will perceive that God is doing something in this place. That, that's my own experience. I can speak from my own experience. God brought this back to me after I, he was showing me this. That I had these experiences in my childhood where I witnessed something that I knew. No one could ever convince me differently that God was in that. And so when I got into the depth of doubting even God's existence... I would go back to these incidents where I knew God had manifested himself in a way that I could not deny it or attribute to coincidence. Because it was something that was experimental. Listen to me this morning. Discipleship involves in, uh, uh, teaching and fashioning our children's minds and their action. That's what discipleship is, is that we're teaching them how to think through a biblical worldview, how to live in accordance with God's word. And we can do all the carving that we want on those things, but it does not influence the heart. What or whom influences the heart? God alone. God alone does. I can't, with all of my instruction, make my children do anything. But God, with his still small voice, can speak to their hearts. And just so gently, on one occurrence, influence them in a way that they will never forget. And will be the glue that keeps them devoted to him for the rest of their lives. The fingerprint of God is what they need upon their life. The fingerprint of God, how does it get on them? Through us. Partially through us. You see, discipleship, necessary, but God's consistent present among us is much more essential. What does that involve? Well, I'll tell you a hard truth this morning. It's going to involve you changing some things in your life. I'm just being honest this morning. Trying to speak to your welfare, I promise you. It's going to take some change. Some real change, not surface change. It's going to take this place and this word and these people becoming the most prominent in your life. There's a lot of dross that needs to be burnt off. Here's what I have found. Whenever you start being revived, the closer you get, the harder it becomes. 
the closer to the Lord you get, the harder it gets. You know, you would think it would be the opposite. You would think, well, I get close to the Lord and then things just become so easy. Well, that wasn't the case for Peter on the water, was it? The closer he got, the harder it got. The more, the closer that the apostles, the closer that Christ got to Calvary, the more difficult it was for them to say, I'm with him. You see, the closer that we get to God, what we're going to find is this. There's an enemy, not Satan, our flesh. And that flesh that we have is at an enmity with God. Our flesh tells us to do all these things. God is saying, no, go this way. And so there becomes this battle, this spiritual warfare that Paul over and over hits on in the scriptures. And it requires a loss, a dying, a crucifixion of self and an attachment to the crucified Savior where we lose ourselves and we find him. What I found in my own life is that I begin to change. My person begins to change. My time, begin, where I spend my time begins to change. I can no longer, I can remember numerous times at my old job, not going and making more money for the simple fact that I knew it did not conflict with the schedule of church, but here's what it did. It took my mind from being able to prepare for the things of God. You see, in the Sabbath in the Old Testament, it started the the evening before the Sabbath. Why? Because there's preparation involved for the day of the Lord. There's a sense to which there is a preparing that goes on in coming into the house of God. I can't do that perfectly. There are exceptions. But I think that it would be expedient for every Christian to say, you know what? There are times in which I am setting aside to prepare for that which is most holy and important. Things nobody, nothing can encroach upon. Why? Because you know that if religion is something of the heart, that your heart has to be ready to perform these exercises, to be involved in these exercises. Quietness, solitude, is a wonderful preparation to come in the house of God. Here's why that's hard. is because it's antithetical to everything in our world. Silence, solitude, getting away, meditation. That's the opposite of everything in our world. You've got a radio in your car. You've got an iPhone that can play and do whatever it wants to do. You've got 10 TVs in the house. You've got a phone where people call you. You've got all these things going on. And let me tell you, as long as those things are attachments... And there's not a stepping away from those worldly things. Revival will most likely always elude us. It requires a crucifying, a death to those things, so that God of his own volition will attach to us. That's the second thing I want to tell you this morning. What's another sign of revival? I'm not just speaking in this incident right here. I'm even saying historically, when you read about revivals throughout history... What are things that you see in common? Here's another one. People begin to elevate the spiritual realm and abase the natural realm. How do you know when you're doing that? Well, suddenly, the things which consume your speech, that's a good barometer for me. I look at what I'm talking about. If what I'm talking about are all natural things, I'm probably not in the right state of mind. But let me ask you this. Whenever we're in the middle of a revival here at the church and the Lord has been with us and we have felt his abiding presence and you go home with your spouse, what are you talking about? Is it not what's been transpiring here? I couldn't tell you during those days what's in my bank account. I couldn't tell you in those days what's going on in world affairs. I bet you're the same. Why? Because your affection is here. It's not really here, it's there. Now, if God is going to abide with us, I believe it. Tectonic 
shift has to occur in many of our lives. You say, well, that's tough. It is tough. It is tough. It doesn't make it any less true or less false, no matter how hard something is. And here's what I would say. Here's one of the reasons why I believe what I'm telling you is true this morning. Because I've watched it with my own eyes throughout my life. I've lived it. I've lived. Please, please hear this in the love I intended this morning. I've lived well-intentioned good people who want to see good come to pass try to have two masters. And the results are all throughout the churches that we associate with. Those younger generations, I believe, you know, you say, what's wrong? What's, why aren't they seeing it? I believe here's the core of it. They see our split devotion. They see it. And a word begs to mind in their heart, and it's called hypocrisy. In other words, this. Don't shake your finger at me to come to church and be all devoted when I know when it comes to the sacred cows in your life, you won't let it go. I believe that's what's in their hearts. I believe they've been raised by people who do that. So they live that way and they say, you know what? Hold on, why should I be devoted at all? Or what if I find more things to attach to? What business is it of yours? You do the same thing when it's convenient for you. Now this morning, that's a hard pill to swallow, but I believe it's very true. And if we want to see genuine revival take place, it comes with a sold out, devoted heart that says God in prayer, in attendance, in the preaching of the gospel, in being willing to be a tool in your hand in our service, outside of our services, in keeping my mind on the people of this church that are not presently here that need to be. My heartbeat is set upon you and you alone. All of those things I will take care of as responsibilities and duties, but my affection is not there, and I know that I'll suffer loss. I believe what what God desires to see is a people who say, Lord, you have my heart, whatever the cost. Do you remember at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24, there was a man... It's been a while since I've read this story. It just comes to mind. I won't be able to call his name. Arana, I think, maybe is his name. That could be way off. And he, David had sinned. He had done a census. He had counted the people explicitly against God's commandment. Arana said, he said, I've got to make a sacrifice to God. So he goes to this man to get the threshing floor and the sacrifices to do so. And the man has such a, a high esteem for the king. He says, you don't owe me anything. I'm going to give it all. I'll furnish it all to you and you can make a sacrifice. And David says this famous line, can I offer to the Lord something that cost me nothing? And it's this rhetorical question. I know that it is not a suitable thing to give the God of the universe something if it does not attach with a personal cost to me. How will that be an atonement for my sins when it didn't have a cost? David wanted to pay the cost because he knew that by paying the cost it would bring him in closer fellowship to God. This morning it may require some loss. And I ask you this morning, we're at this, so then we're at this gulf where you say, okay, maybe I believe you. I've not seen it in my own life. I've not seen it in many people's lives that I've lived with. But maybe I'll take that step to believe that if I'll make a sacrifice of something that is taking me from God, maybe, just quite possibly, God will bless us in a way that we've never witnessed before. And so what is at the the crossroads of taking that step? Faith. That's what it is. It's faith. It's saying something completely opposite to, I would say, Americans today and American Christians today. I don't know what is going to happen. I'm going to pay a big cost. I know that. But I don't know what God is going to do as a response to giving up all and following him. You know, we can trivialize those men in the Bible who left all to follow him because we know the rest of the story. 
We know what God did in their lives. We know what Jesus did on the cross. We know what the book of Acts contains. We know what their life would become. The profound thing about what God did with Abraham, why he's the father of faith, the amazing thing about the apostles is that they dropped all and they had no idea what was going to happen. But they trusted his word. They just trusted him. said, okay, my hope is built on nothing less than what you've just told me. And so then here's what happens. People say, okay, I'm going I'm to pay the cost. They take two steps and they look around and they say, okay, now where's the payment? Where's the payment, God? I've, I've put aside these things. Nobody else is on the water. They're all on the boat. Here I am. Now bless me. It's your obligation to bless me. And if not, I'm getting back on the boat. See, God knows the disposition of our hearts, the hidden things we don't even know. So what does he want to see? Somebody that says, Lord, I'm on the water, sink or swim. If I drown here, this is where I'm going to be. Why? Because unlike Lot's wife, I'm not looking behind me. That's my old life and it has been destroyed. Now I'm living in your kingdom, in your world, wherever you want me to go. You know, that would have been a terrifying thing about Lot's wife. She's leaving her home and she doesn't know where she's going. Why do you think she looked back? The same reason we all look back. When everything in your life is getting destroyed, everything you value, you've worked for is getting destroyed. And you hear the crashings of it. And yet, you know, this is the way I need to go. I challenge you this morning to this question. Do you really want to see a spiritual revival? I'm not talking about, here's the dates. I'm saying a reviving among us that transcends the calendar. A reviving among us that transcends the mere shaping of our kids' minds and actions, but gets to the core of their very person. I would contend this morning, if you really want to see that, pause for a moment and count the cost of it. And what I would say is this, gladly pay it. Gladly pay it joyfully pay it. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? These men are living in a time where for the past three years they have followed Jesus and it's been all persecution, largely persecution, largely suppression, largely verbal abuse and stigma. And here they descend up to the temple having forsaken all that was behind, following God, past the cross, through the resurrection, inspired to keep following. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this this morning. God says, you go wait and pray, and when I'm ready, I'll tell you. Why did God have to have them wait and pray? Here's my personal opinion, because he was doing things in other places that weren't ready yet. He was arranging things in the hearts of people all over the world, and they were all going to come in at one moment. And in that moment, God was going to bring together this beautiful picture of these people scattered abroad all over the Roman Empire. He was going to bring them all in one place at the same time that he was going to manifest himself amongst God's people. And what he was going to do on that day reverberates to this very day. Why did he have them wait and pray? Because the time had not yet come. Just like in Jesus' life, remember? There were times when they took him up to that cliff and they were going to throw him over. And it says, but... His time had not yet come. God in his wisdom knows what's going on all over the world. And for whatever reason, it's not time yet. God knows why. So then, time goes on past the cross, past the resurrection. And on this day, these people waited and they waited and they tarried and they tarried. And they didn't leave and go back to the, the fishing. They didn't leave and go back to the tax collecting. They didn't leave and go back to their normal lives in the Jewish synagogues. They waited and they waited and they waited. And then God's Holy Spirit came down in a way that nobody in the history of the world could have ever expected or known. You tell me, was it worth the waiting? Thousands getting saved from all over the world? watching men perform miracles, watching people who had cried out, crucify him now, cry out, what must I do to be saved by him? 
God was wanting to do a work that they could have never conceived of. But it required the loss of themselves and the waiting and praying for God to descend. I believe that same promise is before us today. I really do. I believe, this is just my opinion, God is doing something among us. Can you feel it? I mean, really, can you feel it? Can you sense it among God's people here? Can you sense it in your own heart that there's something different going on in your heart than what's gone on before? If it's not going on you, I can testify it's going on inside of me. And I think it's going on inside of other people here. And yet, just like everything, the closer we get, the harder it becomes. And so I do what Jesus, this is where some of this thought came from, what Jesus did halfway through his ministry when he was walking with his disciples. I love, I love when I learned this. He, they'd been following him for a long time. And then it starts to get hard. And he turns around to people who had been following him already, received ridicule already, suffered loss already. He pauses and he turns around and he says, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. See, what I find interesting is this. He didn't just say that at the beginning, but he got halfway through and things were getting harder and he turns around again. He says, if you want to keep going, do you really want to keep going? And you know, God poses that question to us at every stop. As things get tougher to climb that hill towards Calvary, towards the crucifixion of ourself, he pauses after every step and he says, Do you want to go another step? Do you want to suffer the other loss? This morning, I didn't really even get to my text like I intended to today. I bring before you this this question. Do you want to see spiritual revival or not? Do you want to? I pray you do. I think you do. I do. I really do. I think people do. But I think there's counting of costs that has to take place and there's a laying down of self that is yet to take place. And I put that before you this morning. I put before you, will you lay it down and trust that whatever we lay it down for is worth it? I believe it is. I can't see it yet. I don't know what it looks like. But I entrust it to the hands of him who, his hands what matters. Whatever he's concealing, I think what he wants to see is sometimes when you give somebody a glimpse of something, they'll work harder as an incentive. I think sometimes what God does is he conceals our sight so that he knows that the reason why we're doing it is our affection for him alone. Saying this, whether I see the harvest or not, whether I'm here or not, matters nothing to me. I want to honor you. That's our message this morning. I pray that you will receive the message in the way that I intend it. Because I do long for a spiritual reviving among us. And I believe that we're headed in the right direction, but the way is getting more narrow. I pray God would help us to surrender those things that are preventing us from getting there. That's our message this morning. Somebody have a word or a testimony on your heart, something you feel inclined to share today.